You're listening to Virtual Sentiments. I'm your host, Kristen Collins, and today we talk to Hans Knoll, an associate professor at the Department of Government at Georgetown University. This episode is a bit of a debunking. You may have heard about how polarized we are. And while this is true, Hans will help explain to us why just saying that we're polarized might not actually explain as much as we think it does, because there are many different ways to define polarization. Um, and he also explains how polar how polarization has a long history, how it's taken us many years to get to precisely uh, the state of polarization that we're at um, and the way that we mean it. Uh, so he'll explain a little bit about its history, a little bit about the different ways to define it, and he'll also explain about pr- what precisely social media, as well as more traditional media, does, because uh, these different forms of media might act in similar ways in terms of uh, shaping polarization, and specifically what we call effective polarization. But I won't um, hold off too much longer and just say that I think you'll feel a lot sharper, a lot smarter. You'll have more literacy about these topics as a result of this conversation with Hans. Enjoy. Today, we're talking with Dr. Hans Knoll, Associate Professor at the Government Department at Georgetown University. He studies political parties and ideology particularly but not exclusively in the United States. He is the author of Political Ideologies and Political Parties in America, as well as a co-author of The Party Decides, Presidential Nominations Before and After Reform. Thank you for talking with us today, Hans. Uh, Happy to be here. So I want to kind of frame our conversation by acknowledging the inspiration for having you on our podcast, which is that a common critique that we see today of social media companies is their political effects on polarization, that their digital advertising model targets users on the basis of their identities, and in order to maintain engagement, tends to amplify anything that will spark outrage. But I think before we get into, and in order to understand these dynamics online, we need to understand a rather thorny concept of polarization, as well as as well as its history in American politics. So I was hoping you might start us off by kind of clarifying the different understandings and maybe misunderstandings of polarization and what it actually refers to. Now, that's a really great question because there's at least five or six things that we might call polarization. And some of them are, you know, very essentially similar enough that they, you could maybe say that they're basically the same thing, but but they are distinct and they are sometimes hard to, um, you know, detect in uh, you know, sort of you know, looking at the data or trying to track what people are saying and, and the like. And so we there can be some disagreements about what counts as polarization. So, so one thing polarization could just be is that like people are farther apart. So there's, the, there's two sides um, in American politics, Democrats, Republicans, liberals, conservatives, and they could just be more uh, more distinct from one another, or further apart, um, or there just could be fewer people in the middle. So that's one possibility. Although the evidence on that is is I think a little bit thin and probably inconsistent at the very least. Like there's people, you know, ways in which um, the parties have become more polarized on some issues and less on others. That one side has has become more extreme on some issue while the other side has not. So so on. Um, another thing that it could mean that I think 
probably it, it really does is the best way to think about what's going on with polarization is that polarization is sort of increased um, consistency, ideologically speaking, or what we would say uh, in political science, uh, increased constraint so that your position on one issue constrains your position on another issue. So if you are liberal on abortion, um, if you don't say you're, you're pro-choice, liberal on abortion, it used to be that that did not mean necessarily anything about your positions on uh, on taxation or foreign policy. But, but now if someone's politically engaged and you know their position on one issue, you probably have a pretty good idea of what they think on other things. Although again, only for people who are particularly engaged in politics, most people still um, are, you know, not that ideological at all. So that's that definitely seems to be happening. There's a sort of increased constraint. Um, another thing polarization could mean is that there's, uh, whether it's constraint or or just uh, extremism on, on the things that, that whatever is happening, that sort of dimension of, uh, of politics um, is better sorted between our political parties. So it used to be that the Democratic Party in particular included some of the most conservative political actors in the country, as well as some of the most liberals. Uh, and you know, Republicans too were very, fairly diverse. Um, that's no longer the case. By and large, being liberal means being a Democrat and being conservative means being a Republican. Um, and so that sorting uh, is, um, is sometimes thought of as, as polarization. There are some people who say it's not really polarization, it's just sorting, but I think by any reasonable concept of what it means to be polarized, right? The North Pole and the South Pole are against each other, that, that that's part of what's going on there. Um, yet another thing that polarization could mean is that people um, just dislike the other side more, right? So it could be that, you know, there's no change in what anyone wants or believes or anything, but that um, people who I self-identify as liberals or Democrats just dislike conservatives and Republicans more and are more afraid of them and more concerned with, about them and, and everything. And that um, definitely is happening. Um, I think it's happening in part because the previous two things are happening a little bit. Um, but that's probably the most uh, significant thing that's happening in our culture right now, in the sense that um, you know everything is becoming uh, contested and people are getting upset about politics in places that they didn't used to think it was so uh, present or important. And that's probably because of this sort of dislike from the other side. And, and then finally, I've seen a lot of people talk about polarization. And what they really mean is the sense that some people on one or both sides of the divide are more... Uh, violent or more interested in their side winning than they are in respecting democracy. And so um, the when they say extremism, they don't mean someone has a you know, sort of uh, you know, a radically um, you know, libertarian view of the, the reach of the state or something, but rather that they think it's okay to um, contest the um, results of a, of a democratic election. And if you don't like the outcome that you, it's okay to storm the Capitol. Um, that's probably not best used. The word polarization probably is not best to describe that, but definitely when people talk about polarization, sometimes that's what they're talking about. Um, and it is related to polarization in that if there weren't a lot of, you know, uh, animosity, what we call affective polarization, I mean, if there weren't strong partisan differences on issues, then maybe people wouldn't start thinking the stakes are so high that it's worth having that kind of violence. So um, there's a little bit of all those things is probably happening, but the more um, sort of affective and emotional and you know sort of attitudinal uh, divisions are particularly uh, both salient and probably the things that people are most worried about. Right, and so some of that affective polarization is very much, or, or affective polarization is very much a form of polarization. 
but it often in our kind of discourse gets wrapped up in these debates of, like you said, the contestation of the election um, and electoral disinformation. Uh, on all those debates, something else is going on. It's not purely that we're polarized, even while that effective polarization is certainly contributing to those dynamics. That's right. And I mean, I think it might be interesting to say, okay, yeah, there's, you know, one thing causes the other and there's some dynamic and we want to better understand all of that. But I think it's a distinct phenomenon. Great. That's really helpful. And I think knowing that there are, are these different kind of definitions and aspects of polarization, so the sorting of the parties uh, and effective polarization, what is the history to all this? Uh, have these dynamics kind of happened slowly over time? Are there critical historical moments that are kind of junctures where we can see uh, these dynamics getting exacerbated or, or spurred further? So because there's so many different ways of thinking about what is polarization, you could find moments where one kind of polarization seems to be very prevalent and not another. Um, and and so forth. And one thing that maybe is a little bit distinctive about now is that so many of them seem to be, you know, reinforcing each other and piling up. So, like at the towards the end of the um, of the 1800s uh, and early 1900s, you had a pretty serious um, division in sort of congressional voting between Republicans and Democrats. Like they they were polarized by the same measures that we look at uh, members of Congress today, but their ideologies were not so well clearly defined. Um, what it meant to be a Republican or a Democrat really meant I'm buying into this uh, this blog role that this party has organized. And it might be, um, you know, it might not be coherent. It might not make sense to you to believe all the parts, but like, okay, I'll do this for, for um, my issue because I really care about, say, uh, Reconstruction and somebody else cares really about, um, you know, uh, the currency and what metals are being used for coins, both really big issues. And um, you might say, well, I'm a Republican, so I'm going to take these positions on these things because it's a log roll, but not have that like deep belief about both of them, which is what we have. Um, the way we've gotten to where we are today, and I think there's a lot of, you know, what is the causal, you know, first mover is sometimes unclear, but what's happened is that the Democratic and Republican parties that were ideologically pretty diverse in um, the middle part of the 20th century, and they were diverse in part because they were um, multi-regional parties. So the, the Democratic Party in the North, and especially the Northeast, was um, fairly liberal on uh, a lot of things. The Democratic Party in the South was conservative on a lot of things, especially race. And the parties were sort of held together with this log roll where the Southern conservatives were willing to go along with a lot of labor policies that they might not have wanted otherwise, because as long as they those policies um, were only applied and only only helped um, whites and they didn't undermine the practice of segregation um, and meanwhile there was a lot of benefits that were coming to the south from from sort of federal uh, dollars meanwhile in the um, north and in uh, particularly the coastal west there was a lot of uh, there were a lot of democrats who um, were willing to go along with that deal and say, well, let's not worry about segregation. We don't really like, care that much about it anyway, even though we might like to see um, segregation ended or some see progress in this way, but uh, it's not that important. Um, and we'll go along with this log roll with the South on the grounds that we're going to get um, get our labor policies. It's a little bit of a simplification, but you had that kind of uh, a sort of trade-off. Um, and then you did have people in the both parties who you know weren't so comfortable with that trade-off, particularly um, a number of liberal Democrats in the North who started pushing the the segregation questions and saying we have to actually you know 
follow through on um, on ending this practice. And then that's, of course, causes a schism in the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party starts to, um, to sort of fragment into a northern and southern version. And uh, ultimately, the northern version wins and the southern version um, shifts over and becomes Republican Party. Meanwhile, the, as they're entering the Republican Party, the Republicans who are most receptive to this liberal way of thinking, uh, who are de- Republicans, become Democrats. And so you get this, this sorting process that's happening. But at the same time, it, you know, it's not just sorting. That's a sort that's sort of like I'm comparing race, politics, and economics. But there's a bunch of other issues that are coming in too. And they are also kind of becoming in t- more and more tightly connected with each other. And so um, I think one of the reasons why we saw that shift around is that uh, liberals and left-leaning uh, political thinkers and activists started really caring about both of those things, both the race issue and the economic issue, and started caring about other uh, questions like uh, gender equality and um, the questions of sort of um, moral, um, what we think of today as sort of like, you know, the moral majority type questions and vice versa. And meanwhile, a lot of Republican activists were starting to care about those things. So they started tying a lot of those pieces together. And it's very complicated, lots of different dynamics. But as those things started both tying together and then being anchored in their parties, then it starts reinforcing. Because for most people, they don't think about these ideological issues too deeply, but they do know that they're a Republican or a Democrat. And as the Republicans become more ideologically consistent, Democrats too, then there's some reinforcement. So that process, you know, sort of starts to accelerate in the 1950s and 1960s, really takes off in the 1970s to the point where you've got an ideological division and the parties just are not keeping up. And then the parties eventually lock into where they are now. So that, you know, from about 2000 um, or definitely 2008 on, you have um, two fairly well ideologically sorted parties. And then the what comes from that is reinforcement and our attitudes and our all of our identities continue to be aligned into these two camps and it just it, it, it sort of accelerates it. Right. So how has sort of the changes of media, so both kind of the rise of television, um, which was originally more limited in terms of the networks that people were watching, uh, but then the rise of cable news and then more recently the rise of digital media, of um, social media, how has that played into and, and are there is there any kind of information as to to what extent these historical dynamics are also kind of propelled by and shaped in any way from these technological developments? Yeah, so I mean, the simple question of like, oh, did uh, did cable news or social media cause polarization is probably not true because, as we discussed, it sort of starts earlier, um, and the process is really a sorting process, not a you know two information streams process exactly, um, and so that's probably um, not uh, not the, sto- the story of like where it came from, but um, it certainly doesn't help to have sort of cross-cutting, if the thing that would cause us to not have polarization would be a lot of cross-cutting views where um, people do have well-developed opinions that are inconsistent with the well-developed opinions of other people who um, who they are otherwise uh, agree with. And that would lead to a lot less polarization and so forth. It probably doesn't help that you have the ability to find um, stories that reinforce what you want. You can track it down and you can find those people who will give you the, the reinforcing information. And we tend to discount information that we disagree with or that comes from disagreeable sources and we tend to seek out information that confirms our biases with a whole you know whole psychological literature on how that works um and that would happen anyway 
And I think people do get exposed to the other side's ideas a lot more than maybe we think, um, but they get exposed to them in, you know, watching Jon Stewart or, um, or, you know, some other com comedian complaining and making fun of the other side. So it comes prepackaged with uh, a sometimes very elaborate, you know, discounting of why, what to believe about that other side. And so, um, you know, you hear a lot of, uh, you know, on Fox News about um, what, uh, you know, what critical race theory is, but it's a distorted view that is that shows it as a, as a perspective that um, needs to be fought. And similarly, you see a lot on, you know, John Oliver or MSNBC about what conservatives think, but it is a distorted or at least, um, you know, sort of uh, selected and edited version that leads to sort of outrage. So the fact that you have these opportunities uh, means that people's willingness to look for differences um, will, you know, can be fed. And then the degree to which we have uh, social differences and our social identities are sorted means that we'll find people who agree with us and they'll reinforce what we think. Um, so it makes it hard to back out of it. Um, I don't think it's the original cause, but as is most the case in most social phenomena, there's lots of causes and uh, this one contributes. Yeah, so that's a that's a really helpful way of getting at the problem that even though it's not the original cause, it doesn't mean it's not a, a factor in this multi-causal, multi-factor uh, problem. When I was thinking when you were discussing this, that the way that people talk about social media law and polarization is, I think, often very focused on the emotional side of it and that effective polarization. So just thinking back to, to that sort of historical narrative and, and temporal direction that we were discussing, is effective polarization, does it appear to be a particularly recent form of polarization that's been increasing, or has that been increasing as sorting has been increasing, and so therefore kind of before social media? I mean, I think it definitely precedes social media and then that you see evidence of it in earlier places. Um, you know, and think about the sort of intense uh, conflict that we think of as the 60s and 70s. Um, it just wasn't between parties, but it was between two sides. And those are now the same sides. It's just that they've now sorted more accurately into the parties. So there's definitely was this, you know, sense that there's the other side is scary or dangerous. Um, that's not itself new. Um, but it is, you know, more aligned with the parties and with the political objects than it once was. Um, so, for instance, I mean, it used to be you. We used to ask questions like, you know, how likely, how what would you feel if your, you know, your son or daughter married someone of a different race or a different religion or uh, or a different political party? And it used to be that, you know, different religion, different race was a lot of people were not comfortable with that. And now most people are are okay with that. Um, they, you know, they at least they will say in a survey that they would not be bothered by their children um, marrying somebody of a, of a different race or, or faith. But for uh, political identity, it's gone the other direction. So it used to be nobody really cared. And now a lot of people, I would be really uncomfortable if my child were to marry a Democrat or a Republican. Um, whether that's, you know, the timing of that exact movement, you know, can be tracked to social media per se, I, I think is, um, you know, again, probably contributes. I think a big part of it isn't so much that, but the sense that you're, we get, we get both from uh, digital media and from sort of, you know, cable news, that the other side is a danger, is a threat. Um, you have uh, people who, you know, might have used to talk about, um, you know, 
radical uh, um, civil rights activists now talk about Democrats on the left and people who might have once talked about, you know, uh, white supremacists and, and uh, segregationists on that dimension might still use those terms, but might also talk about the Republicans in the same breath. And so there's a sense that the other side really is a threat to um, to the country and to the democracy. And then, of course, the violence that we saw on January 6th and some of the other um, political conflicts that we've seen suggest that maybe there's actually something to that. Um, and, you know, how do you how do you imagine marrying into a family that thinks it's OK to do those things that you spend all of your days fretting over? It used to be in the United States that, you know, people complained that the two parties were so similar that you didn't know what you were getting. And, and there was some truth to that complaint, right? You voted for a Democrat and you might be voting for somebody who was very, you know, very liberal on all, so many issues and really like, you know, maybe even more liberal than we think a lot of Democrats today, um, or um, somebody who was, you know, conservative segregationist and, you know, uh, anti, you know, and Cold War um, uh, extremists and, and that, and you, the same, you know, so they're a Democrat. And both of those votes were wrong in the sense that when they got to Congress, then they would have to compromise with each other and you got the mix of what all that was. And so you didn't really know what you were getting when you voted for a party. And that um, was actually a complaint that um, political scientists made in the 1950s. Um, and we don't have that now, right? We have this distinction. Meanwhile, back when there wasn't as much of a distinction in a lot of other democracies where you had multi-party systems, you would have more representation out on the ends. And you would be clear, like, if you really wanted to vote for um, a communist, you could. And if you really wanted to vote for um, sort of a you know, uh, pure libertarian, um, you know, small government in all ways position, you could. And so um, the ideological spectrum that you would see in say, European democracies would be much broader than the United States, where you had these two parties that were like pushing really towards each other. The U.S. has moved out, um, you know, in the center of gravity because of the sorting causes the center of gravity of both parties to be further out. So there now there's there is a little bit more of this this polarization. This also happened in a lot of uh, other democracies too. So there's there used to be less, um, especially in the like, you know, uh, 50s and 60s and 70s, there was less, I mean, with some exceptions, a little bit less on the sort of radical right-wing racist party uh, element, which is now a Senate. There were parties like that, but they weren't, they were small. Um, and now they're moving in that, you know, there's more, um, more politics in that place. So there's a little bit of the same thing happening elsewhere. But what one thing that a multi-party system allows is it allows you to vote for those extreme positions if you want to have them have a representation. And then we know how big they are. We say, oh, OK, the radical right group that wants to um, really, you know, transform and go back to a different period. You know, they get 30 percent of the vote, which is a lot, but it's still a minority. In the United States, they might also get 30%, but because they all vote for the Republican Party, the Republican Party um, has other people voting for it for other reasons and not necessarily bad reasons, if that's what they believe. Um, and then they, that becomes a majority and then they get to implement policy and they get to, and, and they, there's no like check on, well, only half of our party really cares about this issue. So we probably shouldn't make it a priority. Whereas in a coalition government in a multi-party system, the the that group, they might still get what they want. They might still, you'd give the ministry that is concerned with immigration or whatever to, to that group. And so they might still get what they want. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that in multi-party systems, small parties get more what the, than what, of what they want. Um, but then you would know that's how much is there. And if they went too far, then the governing coalition can say, we're going to cut that out and eliminate that group. 
And if they did something like try to, you know, take over the Capitol building, then they could definitely cut them out and say like that, that's the group that's the problem. Let's not vote for them. And so the ability to focus your votes is, um, is a little bit more, uh, more effective. In, in a lot of ways, in a multi-party system, you, there's a lot of uncertainty about what you're voting for because you don't know what the coalition is going to be when they, when they form a government. But there, you send a much clearer signal. In the United States, you also aren't completely sure what the coalition is going to be like. You have a better idea because you know what all of them, all of the elements of the Democratic Party, and you know that they're not going to include Republicans or vice versa. But you, you still don't have a perfect story about how what the play balance is going to be between them, and you can't send a clear signal about the parts. There's a lot of institutional differences there. It's not just multi parties. It's also a parliamentary system. Those democracies most generally have stronger parties, so they're able to prevent. Um, a, a small wing of the party to from taking over. And if the party does, wing does take over the party, well, then they can just split off and form their own better original party if that's what they want. And if they're more effective and more successful, they will be, uh, they will have more uh, support. Um, so our system with its open primaries and um, sort of weak party party control, it's uh, single member districts where people are voting you know, for the party that's in control, but you're also voting for your only one person. This presidential system where that election is entirely separated. All of those things make it really difficult to like isolate um, a large but still minority faction that maybe questions the efficacy of democracy. And I understand in the U.S. there's been an increase in people identifying as independents and rejecting partisan uh, identities. But in terms of the susceptibility of all of us to kind of effective polarization and um, and these dynamics of politics, does being an independent enable someone to avoid these uh, dynamics and avoid, uh, are people in the U.S. actually kind of flexible in terms of voting Republican or Democrat, or are independents themselves kind of being more sorted uh, to either side than we might think if we just take the label of independent uh, at face value? So, yeah, so definitely a lot of independents are what we'd say is sort of closet Democrats or Republicans. Um, I mean, one thing to think about is like in, in other democracies, right, most people do not identify, like we don't think about identifying with a particular party. Most um, and very few people are members of parties in the way that we think of them in the United States. You don't register as a member of a party. And so we don't have that same kind of sense there. And so the measures are different, would be different. Um, and so there's a lot of people in those places that are independent, and yet they're clearly on one side or another, or at least in one part of the uh, political space or another. Um, so there is an increase, a slight increase, it's not enormous, but a slight increase in people saying that they're independent in, in surveys. Um, a little of this is an interesting thing, a little of this has to do with the way in which the questions are asked. So we could go down a rabbit hole about um, the methodology of surveys and how shifting from in-person face-to-face uh, interviews to um, online changes the way people answer things, which might might have some explanation for this. If you let people give their own answers in a face-to-face -face interview, they might give you things that you um, that you won't otherwise, but if you give them an option, then they're really gonna grab that option. It, so there's some interesting things with that. But uh, but even inside, there's, there is a, an increase. Um, but the people who are, are independent, there's a lot of them. There are a lot of different ways in which you could be independent. You could be independent because you just don't care about politics, right? And that, that, those people, independent or not, they're probably not swing voters because they don't even vote. 
you can be independent because you really are, you know, uh, sophisticated and carefully thinking through and the two choices just don't make sense to you. And so you do your own thing. That is, we think, fairly rare. Um, you can be independent because um, you uh, don't like the, you're to the left of the Democratic Party or the right of the Republican Party. And so you don't think of either of those things. But when you go to vote, you're going to vote consistently. Or for that matter, you could be independent because you are um, really are, you know, a little bit more you know, sort of in the middle, but you're still going to tend to lean one direction or another. And um, the scholarship on this for a long time was very clear that um, the people who identified as independent, but then if you press them a little bit further and said, what way do you, where are you, were just as partisan, had just as strong ideological views, were just as as polarized as people who said that they were that they were a part of a party. In fact, maybe even more so than some of the people. Um, and so there's that, there's these, these shadow. And of course, those people are completely affected by it. There's another way in which the affective polarization affects independence though, that I think is really important. There's a really great book by uh, Klaren Krupnikov on, on independence. And their um, argument is that part of the reason why people identify as independent is because they don't want to be part of this messy fight over everything. They find po politics is, is contentious and rude and both sides are talking over each other and they just don't want to be part of that. And so even if they're fairly well, you know, attached and connected to one's party, when they answer in a survey, they'll be like, no, I'm independent because I just don't want to be fully associated with that. And they show with experiments that if you like amp up people's awareness of that kind of uh, contentiousness, they're more likely to say that they're independent. Um, and of course, this is a problem because if you think that, you know, people who otherwise should be engaged in politics are just turned off by the whole process and that's why they're independent, then they're less likely to participate and they're less likely to be engaged in the primary process and all the other things. Um, and so there is a way in which the alien, the, the affective polarization alienates people and then keeps them from participating in politics. And that also drives up the, the people who I sort of identify as independent. Right. So in that process, the people who are not turned off by it being contentious are, you know, the ones who are in most engaged and anybody who might kind of provide a more diplomatic way in or a way of reconciling and connecting to people and, and or at least engaging in a politics in a less contentious way are just going to um, opt out of the whole thing. I am pretty interested in the methodology that you discussed. I don't want to go into a whole rabbit hole, but would you mind um, just briefly explaining how the differences between sort of online versus face-to-face -face, uh, polling and surveys uh, affect what you get from your respondents? So this isn't my work. This is work by... Um by uh, Joshua Dyke, Jackson, Tucci, and um, uh, Gadjiadin, uh, two political scientists who are interested in um, in understanding uh, public opinion and how um, how people respond to um, this. And as I understand it, you know, Joshua Dyke, who's a, a political scientist um, uh, at UMass Lowell, was uh, was sort of interested in the fact that he got back from some surveys this huge amount of of independence. Like, why are there so many independents? And so they speculate that, well, part of the problem is that if you do an open-ended, if you do a, an online survey where you're answering and you're clicking, um, you get to this part where you, with the typical survey question for, for vote for uh, party ID is, first you ask people, are you a Democrat, independent, uh, Republican, independent, or, or what? And then if they say independent or, or not Democrat or Republican, um, you give them a follow-up question. You say, okay, which one are you closer to? And... Um, the, the way that they do that face-to-face -face is they say, which one are you closer to? And then some people say Democrats, some people are sort of Republicans, and then some of them are like, neither. 
but they volunteer that. That is not an option that the person who's speaking to them says, do you mean, are you closer or would you say neither? Um, and so it's not an option there. So then when you do it online, right, you don't have a person talking and you can't let, it's, it's not possible to volunteer an answer. So either you put the option in the middle where you say neither, which is what I see most people do. That's what I do when I do the survey for like my students or when I put it on something I do, um, or you don't um, put the, put an option at all. And then you could count as neither people who don't answer that. They could just like skip. Well, so that's two very different ways of, of testing what people are, are thinking. And um, as you might imagine, if you give them the option, more people will take the option. And if you don't give them the option, fewer people will, uh, will like skip it and try not to. And so when you go to those to, to an online version, the mode changes, in, you know, increases the number of independents in one way and it decreases it in the other because they can't respond and say neither. Um, and so... Um, there's two things to say about this. One is just like, well, what, how should we measure this, right? What should we do in this new mode? Because we are now in the world where that's how we do surveys. Um, but second is like, which is right, right? Was the old way bad because we didn't give people an option? And so, you know, the it, the interviewer effect intimidated people into saying, okay, fine, I'm close to one of them. Um, was, um, you know, is it better to, to, to like for, do the forced choice? There's a lot of people in survey research who think that it's useful to have forced choices because people will tend to answer in the middle. They're just like, no, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, but we want to like learn what you think. And so like make them choose even in a weak direction. Um, so which is it? And, um, and the office of this paper tried to get at that by saying, okay, well, which one does a better job of predicting uh, which of these ways of measuring does a better job of predicting and, and being associated with the ideological differences that people have. And they argue that the one um, where you allow people to choose the independent and therefore there's a lot of independence um, does a better job. Um, I'm not, you know, I think this is still, you know, early work. I, work I saw at the Midwest Political Science Association's uh, annual meeting. I think it's really interesting. And I think it's um, the kind of thing that really illustrates how hard it is to do social research sometimes. We want to like condense things down to a basic idea, but uh, there's a lot of, uh, of, there are a lot of choices that you're going into the data that, that we then talk about. Um, and I think that, you know, regardless of whatever they find out there, even if it's just a question of, okay, well, we should all do use this particular mode going forward and independents are still not as big of a deal as, as some people think, regardless of what it is, I think we need, we, we need to, to dig into this. And I think it also suggests something that the Clark and Krupnikov project uh, really uh, emphasized, which is if there are people who are self-identifying as, as independent, even if they don't, um, you know, vote that differently, it matters that they don't want to be associated with these parties in some way. Um, and um, if we want to understand voting behavior, we probably ought to understand better the people who want to be part of the teams and the people who don't want to be part of the teams. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's important to explore and I think make transparent some of these methodological uh, complexities that we have to deal with in these questions as well. So thank you for that. I did want to ask one uh, last question, which is something I'm very curious about, um, whether there was any kind of formative event or class that you took that led to you studying political parties and ideology and American politics. I'm not sure if there was any one thing, but um, certainly one thing that was fairly formative uh, in my understanding and trying to understand ideology was a course I took at, in, in high school um, from uh, Bill Tatum, and I've, I've talked to him about this. Um, he taught a class on 
he, he taught sort of like the senior social studies sequence. And one of the cool pieces of that, one of the units was all about, um, you know, political thoughts and ideology and, and such. He, you know, had a laid on the back wall of the classroom, a sort of, you know, ideological spectrum from left to right and with political magazines underneath it. And we had an assignment that we were supposed to take some issues and like try to understand how they differed across the spectrum. And I didn't like this. I thought, look, I'm more complicated than this. People are not color strips. They're whole well-defined pictures with complicated uh, views. I'm not gonna you know, fall into this thing. And so I, I actually, instead of sort of refused to do the assignment and wrote instead an essay about why it was a bad idea. I mean, I, I was kind of a coward because in the middle of the assignment, I like explain in the middle of my re refusing to do it, I explained what it, the answer would have been. Um, but I, I didn't like the whole framework. But the thing is, it was true that people, a lot of other people thought this way, like the ideology was a thing that organized it. Um, at the same time around that time, I started sort of resisting the idea of being in a political party. Right? I thought, you know, hey, I don't want to be, I'm not, I'm not ideologically uh, consistent. I'm not going to be one of the parties either. Um, and I had a lot of thoughts about, you know, the kind of, you know, interest group pluralism would be a better kind of direction the way that a lot of people have, have discussed where we should just have lots of different interests and they compete and, and we shouldn't try to organize into parties. Um, and so that became something. So these are things that when um, I you know, was in college and in my first job as a journalist that were sort of like in resonating for me for a long time. Um, and then when I got to grad school, I was like, these are the things I want to study. Like, why do people do this? And as you start to study them and to get into them, it starts to become, well, actually, no, it makes sense, right? Parties are doing a thing precisely because not everybody agrees. They're organizing things and making stuff possible for you. And um, ideology too, even though everybody's really complicated, it does, you know, there is an organizing principle there and so forth. And, you know, no one's worse than a convert. And so now I've been converted to the idea that <laughs> politics uh, should be organized by parties and that ideology is a, is a reasonable way of thinking about things. And now like, that's totally how I think about it. Um, but it kind of grew out of this frustration, which I think a lot of people have, mm -hmm. that the political system, maybe especially in the United States, does not reflect their views accurately. And so, um, I wish it was different, but rather than insisting that it be different or wishing it was different, in my, the, the, the approach that it's sort of an academic mind has is I want to understand why it's not the way it was. And I was convinced that it should be, um, you know, maybe not exactly how it is. I think there's still a lot of flaws with the U.S. system, but now the, I think those flaws are less about that there are parties and more that we don't have as many parties and that those parties aren't as strong as they, they could be in other democracies. I really appreciate you sharing that with me. And it really resonates with me too, because as somebody who grew up very suspicious of parties and very, I think, even proud to reject being a member of, of a party um, and then studying politics in college and grad school really changed the way that I thought about how, how not only how things work and the role of parties, but then also the fact that I was not just because I considered myself outside a party that didn't mean I was immune to sort of the uh, the tendency to lean one way or the other, or um, I think that the problem of, of negative partisanship um, and, you know, realizing, oh, you know, this, I, I too am subject to these dynamics and issues. So uh, I, thank you so much for chatting with us today. No, it was great to be here. This was a really great conversation. There's a few points from our conversation on polarization that I just want to recap. 
So Hans gave us really great definitions of polarization. And when we say that polarization has increased since the mid-20th century, that refers to a few different things. So as Hans put it so nicely, polarization has increased in terms of increased consistency among those who are um, more ideological. So not everybody in the U.S. is ideological. Um, in general, it's only people who are really politically engaged who are more ideologically uh, engaged and have and for those people they're more ideologically consistent so if they're liberal on one issue area that is more likely to be and it tends to be predictive of them being liberal in other issue areas now uh, I think this is really key for understanding the increase in polarization and when we say that America has become more polarized since the mid-20th century, that is often referring to the fact that the parties have become more sorted. So the parties are more polarized in that the parties are more ideologically um, consistent and are more sorted in that being liberal, as Hans put it, means you're a Democrat. Um, being conservative means that you're a Republican. Um, yeah, of course, there are exceptions, but um, that's something that has increased over time and that has increased, especially since um, the 1960s. Um, as Hans explained, there was a shift in log rolling practices that were particularly important in the Democratic Party where and log rolling practices refer to the practices of vote trading where I vote for your issue area, even when I disagree with it, I don't like it. I might prefer something else, but I do that because you're going to vote for uh, my preference on another issue. A shift in the Democratic Party in support of civil rights, as well as other changes in American politics in various issue areas, especially relating to activists on both sides, affected uh, that history of the sorting process. And so that precedes uh, social media as well as various uh, changes in uh, television and other traditional news media as well. So uh, as Hans put it, that all that media might be a part of uh, the this history, but it's a multi-causal um, history as well. And the final definition of polarization is affective polarization, and that's with an A, A-F-F-E-C-T, and that's referring to emotions, the idea that we increasingly uh, dislike or are afraid have uh, certain feelings about people uh, on the opposite side of us, ideologically speaking, or uh, of members of different parties. And as Hans put it, that can be a result of these other um, increases in polarization, these other, the sorting process, right? But um, it can also be impacted by social media. And I think largely a lot of the political science literature that talks about the effects of social media is looking at effective polarization. And so that'll be hopefully something that we talk about more in other future episodes as well. It's its own issue area, its own uh, big question that we could examine further. And so I hope you all join us again, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for listening. Thank you.